I invite you to take your Bibles out and take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. I will be saying those 10 words a lot over the next two years. Take out your Bible and turn to the book of John. Now, before we get started, let me tell you how we got here to the Gospel of John. Back in the second week of November last year, I booked a cabin up in Dayton, Tennessee for a three-day personal private retreat, just me, myself, and I. And I went there with the express purpose of praying and seeking the Lord, renewing my commitment and, and to him and to this church, and just really asking the Lord where he would have us go as a people in this year, 2022. Now, you need to know, if you know me, I went into that weekend or that three-day retreat already with some clear thoughts in my mind. Oh, this is where we need to go. This is what we ought to do. And so as I got into that retreat, I took with me really four things besides my clothes and toiletries. I took my Bible, I took my guitar, I took my laptop, and I took this book right here. This book is called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. I'd read four or five chapters of this book already, and I'd hoped in these three days away I'd be able to complete and finish that book. Well, after starting my personal retreat on that Monday with some prayer and confession and personal worship to the Lord, singing out, I started in chapter six of that book, and I read that book straight through Tuesday morning and completed it. And the Lord used that book to completely reshape and reframe my thinking. It's as if the Lord said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And so as he shaped that, and I begin to think through that, again, the book focuses on Jesus' heart. The only place in the New Testament where it tells us something of his heart is in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And I begin thinking, God, I want to know the heart of the Lord. I want to know the heart of Jesus intimately. And I want our people to know the heart of the Lord Jesus intimately. Well, the magnum opus in the Bible for exploring the heart of Jesus is the Gospel of John. And so immediately I began to read the Gospel of John on that Tuesday morning. And I read through the Gospel of John, and in my time there over the next two days, I outlined the entire 21 chapters of John into 84 sermons. I came back from that retreat, and the next week, I took those 84 sermons and I plotted them on the calendar. So I can tell you where we're going to be. December 23rd, 2000, excuse me, December 10th, 2023, will be in the last verse of the last chapter of John. Lord willing, he may change things, but that's what's on our calendar. So for the next two years, church, we will be learning of the heart of Jesus. We will hear from his best friend who Jesus is. And I've come around this simple theme for us. It's just this. Jesus is blank. Jesus is blank. And over the 21 chapters of John, we'll discover what goes in that blank. These first two chapters reveal Jesus is here. <laughs> He's here. He's shown up. He's arrived. He is here. 
and Jesus has come. And John presents that to us in the probably the most studied section in all the Bible, what's called the prologue of his gospel. We find how he interweaves what is known in theology as the hypostatic union, the nature of Jesus, that he is fully God and he is fully man. He, he displays that in these first 18 verses of John chapter 1. We'll see how John says Jesus is here in that he begins to select his disciples. We'll see that he is here when that John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says, Jesus is here. You move into chapter 2, and we see the very first miracle of Jesus, the turning of water to wine at the wedding in Cana. Jesus is here. And then so profoundly, we see that Jesus is here. As he goes through there in chapter 2, he begins to clear out the temple in Jerusalem from the money changers. And he says, I'm here. I'm here. We get into chapter 2 of his gospel and we will see that Jesus, or excuse me, chapter 3, Jesus is life. Jesus is life. And that'll take us through Easter Sunday. Isn't going to be exciting to celebrate Easter with this reality. Jesus is life. I'm not going to go through all 21 chapters this morning. But you can see there are themes throughout the Gospel of John. And as we go through this Gospel, we will see John portray Jesus. Jesus is. Jesus is. Now, as we get started this morning in our inaugural study, let me ask you a question. How many Gospels are there? There's one. <laughs> There's one Gospel. That was a trick question. There are four Gospel accounts, but there is only one Gospel of Jesus. There are four perspectives on Jesus. In this room today, you may have noticed before, there are three remote high-definition cameras, and they're all pointed at me right now. And they are displaying to our live stream audience, those homebound or those who can't be here, an accurate portrayal of what's happening here on the platform. Now, they're different perspectives, but they're all three accurate. In a very same way, we have the four gospel accounts that portray four completely accurate yet different perspectives of Jesus. Now, the first three Gospels in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are known as what are synoptic Gospels because they give a synopsis, a summary of the life and the ministry of Jesus. That is not what the Gospel of John is. The Gospel of John is different. See, the three synoptic Gospels, they record for us things about Jesus' life, his travels, his birth, his ministry, his teaching, his parables, his miracles, uh, his execution, his resurrection, his ascension. John is different. It's very different. In fact, scholars tell us that 90% of what appears in the Gospel of John is not mentioned in the other three Gospels and vice versa. You see, because the synoptic Gospels, they present to us a earthly view of Jesus' life, which is important, but John presents a heavenly view of Jesus' life and ministry and person. He gives a supernatural view. There, there's nothing in the Gospel of John about Jesus' birth, about his early life, his temptation in the wilderness, even the transfiguration of which John was a witness. He doesn't include that because he's giving us this heavenly account of his life. 
Interestingly, there are no parables in the Gospel of John. Why? Because parables are earthly stories, and John is presenting a heavenly view of the Lord. So the question arises for us, why does John present such a unique gospel perspective? All four gospels accurate and 100% true. Why is John's so unique? Well, good for us, he gave us his thesis statement. It's not at the beginning of his paper, it's at the end. Notice John's thesis statement, his purpose statement for his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He writes this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. You can go read about some of them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are not written in this book. But these are written, here's his purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John uses the word believe twice here in verse 31. Throughout the Gospel of John, he uses that word believe over a hundred times. John has written this Gospel of Jesus so you would believe. The things that are included here are included for this specific purpose, Christian so that you would believe, but not just that. Notice what he says. By believing, you would have life in his name. And the word he uses here is not bios, from which we get biology, physical life. No, it's zoe, this spiritual life, this abundant life, this fulfilling life, this real life. And friends, the world is selling you all kinds of things that says this is how you can have life. And John says, no, here's how you have life. Look to Jesus, believe, and by believing, you may have life in his name. And so my prayer for 2022 and 2023 is that we would come and see and know and believe all that Jesus is. And by believing, we would have life in his name. Anybody want to have life in the name of Jesus today? Well, with all that as introduction, let's look at our focal text for this morning, verses 1 through 5 of the first chapter. This is God's word. Hear it. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. And in this passage of Scripture, in this introduction of Jesus, I want us to see four profound truths that are laid out for us to understand. The first one is this. Number one, John tells us Jesus is the Logos, the Logos. John begins his gospel account with these words, in the beginning was the word. And I say Logos because the Greek word underneath that English word, word, is the Greek word Logos. We get our English word logic or logical from this word Logos. And I want you to see the significance of this word. Most scholars believe that the Gospel of John was written by John, the last of the four Gospel accounts, primarily to introduce Jesus to a 
Gentile, Greek-speaking audience, not a Jewish audience. This could be a gospel tract for Gentiles, which is why often in the church world we say, oh, you want to know Jesus? Read the gospel of John. In fact, when I came back from that retreat and I told Amy where the Lord had taken me, I said, we're going to be going through the gospel of John. She said, well, you've already preached through that, haven't you? I said, no, I've preached through Matthew, I've preached through Luke, I've never preached through John. She said, well, why not? I said, I'm going to now, okay? Sorry. So we're going to go through John. Because in John, we see Jesus is the Word. Now, to the Jewish mind, this word, Word, is significant. Because the Jewish mind understood that the Word represented God's self-revelation. So often in the Old Testament, you'll read, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. The word came through the prophet. So the Old Testament mind had this concept of word as being the revelation of God. Now, to the Greek mind in the first century, there was a little bit of a difference. And we'll see what that is. In fact, notice, speaking to Hebrews, how the book of Hebrews introduces that book about the word, about Jesus. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, that's the word, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The word is the revelation of God, but what Hebrews 1 and what John 1 tells us is the greatest revelation of God to humanity is Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Get to know Jesus. So he's the revelation of God to the Hebrew mind. He's the reason of God to the Greek mind. This term logos would have been firmly planted in the first century Greek-speaking culture. One of the earliest Greek philosophers in the late 6th century B.C. was a fellow by the name of Heraclitus. Heraclitus. He made an observation, and that is that Everything is constantly in a state of change. In fact, he coined this phrase. You may have heard it before. You never step into the same river twice. Why? Because the water's always moving. The shore is always changing. You never step into the same river twice. So he observed, just by looking at the world, everything's always changing. But that prompted a question in his mind. Well, why isn't everything moving into disorder? If everything's always changing, why is there order in our world? And he surmised there is this divine lagos. He thought it was an impersonal force, this divine reason, this divine logic that is keeping everything in check. Even though everything's always changing, there's order. And so the reason the stars stay in the same place in the sky, the reason the seasons move and the moon has its course is because of this divine Lagos. In fact, the Greek philosopher you've probably heard of, Plato, actually picked up on this concept a hundred years after Heraclitus. Notice what Plato said. Fascinating. Plato wrote, It may be that someday there will come forth from Theos, from God, a Lagos who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. And as Paul said to the philosophers there in Athens, The one you don't know I'm making plain to you is Jesus. Jesus is the divine logos, not an impersonal force, but a person. And so John seizes upon this word, word. He seizes upon this word, logos. And to the Hebrew mind, he says, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of truth. To the Greek mind, he says, he is the divine reason, not an impersonal force, but a personal being who holds the universe together. 
May I introduce to you Jesus? He is the Logos. Secondly, from this scripture, we see not only is he the Logos, number two, he is the Lord. And by Lord, I mean it in all caps, L-O-R-D. He is God. He's divine. Notice how verse one continues. In the beginning was the word, the Logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, John is pointing out in this, these two verses three different aspects about the God nature of Jesus Christ, the man, the Logos. Three aspects of his divinity, of his deity, that he is, in fact, God. First phrase I want us to consider is this phrase, in the beginning was the word. Now, what's John saying there? He's affirming the eternality of Jesus, that Jesus is eternal, his pre-existence, before anything was anything, before the, the physical world, the universe existed, Jesus is. He is the Lord. He was there in the beginning. He has been continuously existing forever. And because of that, listen, he is not part of creation. There are false religions that will tell you Jesus is part of creation. He is a created being. No, you take him right here. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Before anything was anything, he is eternal. You know, all four gospel accounts begin somewhere. They have to. The gospel of Mark begins with Jesus' baptism. It begins to portray Jesus, according to Mark, his public ministry. That's where he starts his gospel account. You go to Luke, and he starts a little earlier. Luke starts with the nativity, and we see the, the events surrounding the pregnancy of, Je- of, of Mary with Jesus and the birth of Jesus. We study that in December during our Christmas season. You go to the Gospel of Matthew, he goes back a little further. He goes back and he begins his Gospel account, though he has a nativity account, he begins it with a genealogy. He traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to the patriarch of patriarchs, Abraham. That's where he starts his gospel account, and he includes in that ancestry David to show that Jesus has the lineage, the right to sit on the throne of David forever. But John says, I'm going to go back even further than that. He says, I'm going back to the beginning. Now, we may think originally that he's just talking about the beginning of creation because these are the same three words that the book of Genesis begins with. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. But when John says in the beginning, he's going back further than even creation. He's going back before creation, before anything was anything. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus has existed forever and always. He has no beginning. He was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Here's the second phrase. And this word was with God. In fact, he repeats it in verse 2. In the beginning, he was with God. What is he communicating here? That even though Jesus shows his deity by being eternal. You can't be eternal unless you are God. He introduces here a distinct orthodox Christian doctrine. It's called the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, you can't use this language with me. I can't be Troy and also be with Troy, right? That language doesn't work. But we understand with this, our concept of logic, Matter can only occupy one space at one time. I can't be here and be someone else, somewhere else. But that's not God. You see, if we could understand God, well, he wouldn't be God. We can't wrap our minds around him. 
We are finite. We can't comprehend the infinite. We are temporal. We can't understand the transcendent. And so John is introducing to us the triunity of God. He is three. They are one. There have been many type of metaphors and illustrations to try to explain this truth to our simple minds, the illustration of a, a, a man. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. But yet that breaks down because I'm all three at the same time. I'm really the same person. Some have used the illustration of H2O, that it can be a liquid, it's water, it can be a solid, as ice, it can be a gas and steam, but it can't be all three at the same time. You see, there is no human metaphor by which we can understand and describe the Trinity because he is God and he is outside of our thinking and our understanding. And so John introduces this eternal preexistence. He was God in the beginning. He was with God, but notice this third phrase, and the word was God. You can't get a clearer, more succinct declaration of the divinity and deity of Jesus than that. Jesus was God. (laughs) If anybody denies the deity of Jesus on your front doorstep as they're knocking on your door, just simply take them here. Uh, Jesus is God. John clearly says that. Not a God, not like God. Jesus was God. And so John is saying here, the divine reason that you Greeks have been contemplating for centuries, the divine revelation that you Jews have been looking to for centuries, he's here. He's the Lord. He's God. He's the divine logos. He is the divine Lord. But here's the third thing I want you to see about Jesus. Jesus is the life. Now, months from now, when we get to John 14, we'll see this very explicitly in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the Life, But here John introduces the subject. In verse 3 and 4, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And by saying in him was life, he is saying he is the source, he is the origin of all life. Therefore, he is the creator. Jesus is creator. Jesus is the life. Growing up in Central Florida in the 70s and 80s, I was fascinated with NASA. Why? Because as a little boy, I loved seeing rockets go up into space, right? I loved to watch my grainy color television set in our living room as they would do the countdown of the rockets, and I'd see it blast off from the launch pad, and then I would run outside our front yard and look eastward to the coast of Florida, and I would see that trail of smoke go up into the air. I took many trips with my parents, with my mom particularly, over to Cape Canaveral, and I would get little model shuttles and little model rockets and little model eagle has landed, and I would, with the glue, put those things meticulously together. I loved it. In 1977, NASA launched the Voyager mission, these two craft that went out into space to to send forth back to Earth pictures and data. Forty years later, they're still sending back data to the world. They are now traveling in what's known as interstellar space. They've passed Pluto. We don't know if it's a planet or just a chunk of ice, but they've passed Pluto and now are in interstellar space, still sending back data. They're traveling at a speed of 38,000 miles per hour. 
If a car went by Cummings Highway on 38,000 miles per hour, you couldn't see it with your naked eye. We don't process information that quickly. Incredible speeds. Outside of our solar system is what's known as the Oort cloud, and this is a cloud of dust and particles and other small things that are kind of surrounding our whole solar system. At 38,000 miles per hour, it's taken these uh, probes to go where they are now into interstellar space about 44 years. In order to get to the outside edge of the Oort cloud of our solar system at 38,000 miles per hour, they'll get there in 10,000 years. The next closest star is called Alpha Centauri, and traveling at 38,000 miles per hour, it'll take the Voyager ships another 25,000 years to get there. Our solar system is beyond comprehension at its expanse and its size, but we're just a small, everyday, run-of-the-mill star in the Milky Way galaxy, of which astronomers estimate there are 1.4 billion stars. We're just one. And we're not the only galaxy in the universe. Astronomers, again, estimate there are over a billion galaxies with approximately one and a half billion stars each. Jesus created it all. Jesus is God. Jesus is life. And he is the origin of all things. But let's go from the telescope to the microscope and start looking here in our world. We have estimated and, and seen and discovered and named about 1.5 million different species. I'm going to start naming them all off. And I'm just kidding. It's staggering. And here's what's amazing. Most of the species of the earth have not even been discovered yet. I learned this week as I was doing some research, there are over 1,200 types of beetles. I thought there were only four. John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Thank you very much. Sorry. A little beetle humor there. Oh, there's 1,200 beetles, not just in Liverpool. Now, let's look at this microscope. If you have your outline, hold your outline up that you're taking notes on, I hope. If you look at the scripture text there, verses 1 through 5, at the end of that, I have the address, John 1, 1 through 5. You see that dash on your outline? Not the dash in the header. That's too big. Look at the dash on your outline. That dash is approximately a millimeter, a millimeter. Now, if you take that dash and you divide it by a thousand, okay, a thousand parts to that little dash, that's called a micron, a micron. You see on the screen there, microorganisms. Those are bacteria and fungi and viruses. Those are all microorganisms. Most microorganisms are about two microns, so one five hundredths of that dash. You take a micron, one one thousandth of that dash, and you, dash, and you divide it then by 10,000, well, then you have an atom. One ten thousandth of a micron is an atom, and, and we know from chemistry what, how an atom is constructed. We have the proton, the neutron, the electron, and the croutons. Oh, I'm sorry, croutons are not in the atom. Here's a little atomic humor. What do the protons say to the electron? Why are you always so negative? And the electron said, well, you think everything revolves around you, don't you? And to that, the neutron said, hey, guys, I'm just thankful to be here at no charge. Sorry. So according to the Bible, Jesus created all of this. He created it all because he is 
life. And the Bible also says he not only created it, but he is sustaining it. Every atom as it rotates and, and moves and it's the building block of matter, Jesus is holding it all together. He is life. And the point of it all that John is so concerned about us understanding, this Jesus, he's here. He's here. Wow. He's taken on human flesh. He's arrived. He's on the scene. He is incarnated. And that's why, friend, the only answer to our issues in this world lies with someone who is outside this world. The only answer to the problems and the hiccups and the hang-ups we have in time and space reside in someone who is outside of time and space but has entered his construct of time and space to save us. And that really leads to the fourth thing. Jesus is the light. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. What's John saying here? Well, next week we'll dive in a little deeper and, and submerge a little further into what the connection between life and light is. But suffice it to say that when John is communicating it here, he's describing for us the purpose for his coming. The purpose why Jesus came. It's verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In a few weeks, we'll arrive to verse 14, very familiar. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. But here, John is introducing this idea that Jesus took on human flesh, that the light entered the darkness. I told you earlier that Jesus is outside of time and space, but yet He entered the construct, His construct of time and space, to provide salvation. And because of that, he is the answer for the world today. Above him, there is no other. Jesus is the way. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but sometimes I wonder if even we as Christians remember that. We can become so fascinated and fixated upon the supposed power brokers of this world. Can I tell you the answer for the problems in the world today are not in the halls of Congress? The answer to the problems in the world today do not reside in the Oval Office. Can I get an amen? The answer to the world's problems today are not in the ivory towers of academia. And even though we can say that and amen that, how fixated we become on those structures. They provide no opportunity for life. They provide no answers for the darkness. Only Jesus is the light of the world. So friends, for the next two years, we're going to dive deep into the light of Jesus. And I pray we will come to know his gentle and lowly heart, his love for sinners like me and like you. And in so doing, we will begin to emulate those same character qualities of his gentleness, his lowliness, his meekness, his kindness towards those who are downtrodden like me and you. Now, in order for us to discover 
and also flesh out these truths, we have some action steps that we believe the Lord is leading us to. He may revise these and add to these, remove some of these, but I want to walk you through real quickly six action steps where we we believe the Lord is taking us in the days to come. I mentioned to you at the beginning that this book, Gentle and Lowly, was significant in, in me coming around this theme and focus for this year. And so we have purchased the video a companion series for the book. We've also purchased books. If you want to get one of these, how much are they, Wade? Five dollars. That's your cost. That's not our cost. You can come get one of these for five bucks. See Wade, and you can get one of these books and read it for yourself, but also several of our small groups. I know one began this morning doing the video study. We've got others who will be doing it. Our prayers that all of our small groups at some point this year will do this video study based on the book Gentle and Lowly. Again, we're going to be learning, learning about the heart of Jesus Here's the second thing we're going to do, and that is relaunch our deacon ministry. Now, we are the body of Jesus Christ, and as the body, we're called to be his hands and his feet. And one way that God prescribed through the Scripture for us to do that as a church is through this office of deacons. Now, after COVID and the pandemic, our deacons kind of took a—some of them are just kind of wondering, well, what am I supposed to be doing now? And we're, we're going to relaunch our deacon ministry— And so, deacons, if you are currently serving as a deacon or have served as a deacon, February 22nd, we're going to have a deacon fellowship that evening where we get together and we dialogue about how we relaunch our deacon ministry. Basically, here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church, our deacons serve two purposes. One, they each have a family ministry. We're there where our roster of active members is broken up among our deacons, and they serve to minister those families. And secondly, each of our deacons are what what are called task-oriented deacons. So, for instance, we have a couple of deacons of buildings and grounds who take care of our campus. We have deacons of ordinances who serve as communion and take care of our baptism. We have deacons of children, of youth, of senior adults, of assimilation. So these deacons function in those two ways. And so we're going to relaunch our deacon ministry this year. Thirdly, our missions conference. Now, this is not something new. We have a missions conference every year, but there are going to be some new elements to this conference. March 19th through the 23rd, it just so happens On March 20th, which is the Sunday of our missions conference, according to my schedule, we will be at John 3.16. What a great verse for a missions conference theme, right? So that's going to be our theme for our conference. God so loved the world. Hallelujah. What the Saturday before, we're going to have kind of a pre-conference conference. That Saturday morning, one of our missionary partners in New York, Chad Wade, is going to be here, and he's going to take us through conversation evangelism training where we learn how in a few hours to share the gospel of someone that we may not even know. We're going to eat lunch together, and then get this, after lunch, we're going to pair up in in pairs or trios and go to Coolidge Park and share the gospel with strangers. Some of you, your heart just hit your stomach. If that's you, this training is for you. Come on that Saturday before our conference and learn how to share the gospel in a conversational way with other people. And then on Monday, it just so happens, uh, Hamilton County Schools will have a teacher work day, so our children will be out of schools in our community. So we're going to have a backyard Bible club, an outreach event for our community, for the children. So we're going to seek to be Jesus in our community. Here's the fourth action step. We're going to have an eight-week sermon series in the summer through the book of Proverbs. Jesus is here. Jesus is life. Jesus is wisdom. And we're going to learn the wisdom of Jesus through the pen of the Proverbs this summer. Then coming into the fall, we'll have a church-wide Bible study like we always do. This will be focused on us learning how we are wired. We are the church, individually members of it. 
And each of us have, as individuals have been given gifts, talents, abilities, experiences, um, unique opportunities. How has God wired us individually for service and ministry and function within his church? And so that's what our focus for our church-wide study is going to be in the fall. And finally, number six, we're going to have this new staff makeup, or that's the best word I could think of. So as most of you know, the chief shepherd, the commanding officer, has reassigned Tracy Trivett to one of his outposts in South Carolina, right? So we are going to be filling that position, but this position is going to look somewhat different. So here's your invitation. This Wednesday evening is our bi-monthly members meeting. So if you're a member, you're expected to be there. If you're not a member, you're welcome to be there. This is not a closed meeting. We're going to have supper at 5.30, nachos and taco soup and other things. Then our meeting at 6.30, and our elders will be sharing extensively where we believe the Lord is taking us with regard to our ministerial staff in 2022 and beyond and how we hope to fill that role or those roles there. So this is Wednesday. Don't miss Wednesday night. Why are we doing all that? Why are we doing all this? One profound reason. Jesus is. Jesus is. You know, the tense of that verb is the difference between heaven and hell. There are lots of people who can say, you know, Jesus was, just like Alexander the Great was, Abraham Lincoln was, Jesus is. Jesus is. He lives. We've sung about that today. He is our living hope. And this Jesus, our living hope, who is the light, entered the darkness. What is that darkness? It's our sin. Our sinfulness, because of our own sin, because of our own choices, we are separated from this holy God who created us for relationship. But Jesus is. The light has entered the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know that's true? That's the nature of light. Darkness cannot overcome light. How many of you have ever been on a cave tour before? Right? You go in there, and the guide will take you through that cave tour, and at some point... If he's a good cave tour guide, what does he do? Turns out all the lights, right? And just for, a, it's creepy. For a few moments, you're in absolute darkness. And you're like, come on, this is, this is taking longer than what I thought it was going to take. Finally, he'll turn on a flashlight or a strike a match. The darkness cannot overcome the light. And the same is true of Jesus. He is the light. The darkness cannot overcome the light. Maybe this morning, You've never allowed the light of Jesus to shine into your own life. Well, this is the gospel that Christ has come into the world, the Son of God, in human flesh. And though he was tempted in every way that you've been tempted, he never sinned. And because Jesus never sinned, he and he alone possessed the qualification to be the atoning sacrifice, to be the sin bearer for all of humanity. And the only appropriate response to Jesus is death in your place. His burial, he was dead. His resurrection and ascension to power. The only appropriate response is what John says. These things are written to you so that you would believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? This is an opportunity for you to express your faith in Jesus and his gospel even this morning.
just a moment, we're going to sing a song together, and I encourage you to express your faith, your belief, your hope and trust in Jesus. And that leads to my last thought. Jesus is here, and he desires to manifest his presence through us. Let's go to him in prayer.